Welcome to NARAL's The Morning After. Each week, our podcast brings you the latest on reproductive health care, progressive politics, and the fight to keep abortion safe and legal. You can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, YouTube, and on our website at ProChoiceOhio.org. The program also airs each Friday morning at 9 on WGRN 94.1 in Columbus, Ohio. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ProChoiceOH. NARAL's The Morning After is a production of NARAL ProChoice Ohio. Enjoy the show! Hello, my name is Kelly Freeman. I'm the statewide field manager with NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio, and welcome to uh, the first of our series, uh, Parenting During a Pandemic. We're going to be talking about childcare uh, with representatives Casey Weinstein of Hudson, Ohio, and Allison Russo of the Upper Arlington area here in Greater Columbus. My co-host is Ashley Underwood, program manager here at NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio. So let's go ahead and get into it. Um, Ohio ranks among the bottom seven states for income eligibility limits for child care assistance, which means that Ohio families must be deeply impoverished before qualifying for benefits. Um, are there any plans to expand access to child care benefits, particularly in the wake of COVID-19? Um, so I'll, I'll take a first stab at that. Uh, yes, yeah, so that is correct. Currently, the qualification for publicly funded child care, or what we call PFCC, sits at 130% of federal poverty level. Um, that puts us at the bottom of states and where you can qualify. So we have a lot of Ohioans, particularly moms and single moms, who are making decisions about whether or not to take jobs or pay raises because even a 25 cent increase in hourly wage can put them out of qualification. Um, we've had a commitment from the governor um, in, the, in his term to raise that eligibility to 150%. Um, I say that you know raising eligibility for publicly funded childcare is where we absolutely have to start uh, with this issue of, of better investment in early childhood care and education. Uh, we do have a piece of legislation right now that was introduced by Representative Mary Lightbody, House Bill 685. Uh, she introduced it, I think about two months ago, uh, as this all began, that raises that to 200%, which actually puts us in line with some other states. In terms of, you know, increasing that level, uh, frankly, I think realistically, where we'll have um, probably more productive conversations about that will be in the next budget cycle uh, in the next General Assembly. But it's good that we are having these conversations. I co-chair the uh, bipartisan Legislative Children's Caucus, and we've talked about child care quite extensively and making sure that we've got a group of legislators on both sides of the aisle who are well-versed in this issue and who understand the, the critical importance of better investment by the state in publicly funded child care. Yeah, I would, I would just add that um, to Rep. Russo's point, a lot of the advocacy, a lot of the work that we've been able to do is through the budget. So we we did get a, uh, with the support of the governor and a bipartisan budget um, at the start of this General Assembly, a big uh, influx of funds at the county level for, you know, these, what we call wraparound services, uh, which go to things, um, you know, to, to families who need it. Um, but specifically related to childcare, we weren't able to, to move the needle there. So it's, uh, it's been a source of frustration. Unfortunately, with, with Rep Lightbody's bill, it's, it's great legislation, but it's, 
Uh, it hasn't moved since it was introduced. Um, so, you know, as uh, I agree with Representative Russo that it's probably uh, the best opportunity in the next budget to do something um, and, and to get some movement on this. With COVID-19 limiting, um, limiting the number of children per room, um, teacher even further, there is even more of a need for increased access and cost to childcare. But um, even before the pandemic, there were areas of the state that had very limited access to care. Is the state doing anything to address childhood child care deserts, especially now with an even greater need? Um, well, I'll, I'll start with this. So this is an issue that I've been very intimately involved in. Uh, so certainly when COVID-19 originally shut down childcare, uh, we did have some childcare centers that were able to remain open and operate as pandemic childcare centers with much lower classroom ratios. Um, and of course, with lower classroom ratios, your overhead costs don't go away. You still have staffing costs. In fact, many of these childcare um, centers, whether it's home-based or a childcare center uh, providers, actually have increased costs. If you think about the investments that need to be made to create dividers in classrooms, increase cleaning supplies, also PPE, uh, all of those things cost a tremendous amount of money. Um, and so it has been, it's taken a situation that was already critical for our childcare infrastructure and made it dire at this point. Um, there, as childcare centers have been allowed to reopen with much lower classroom ratios, I think it's, it's six for uh, infants and then eight um, for your uh, toddler and preschool classrooms. Uh, that model is unsustainable long term, frankly, and both the, as you said, as we mentioned earlier, we're already underfunding um, publicly funded child care. Um, a lot of times child care centers, it's a very interesting balance, spreadsheet balance that they have to do. They have to have private pay um, uh, children and families often to supplement the publicly funded child care. And so it takes um, when you've got lower classroom ratios, uh, you've got you know, frankly, teachers and, and providers, instructors, uh, they're struggling to keep them um, back into jobs because, uh, you know, they're putting themselves also at risk. Uh, there are a number of issues there. Um, it, it is a very unsustainable financial model long term. Uh, so a couple of the things that have been done at the state level to address this, uh, the governor did commit using some of the CARES uh, funding, some of the federal relief uh, bills that have already passed, $60 million in loans uh, to these centers and some of the, for them to be able to do restart costs. Uh, some of those have been distributed at this point, but frankly, it is not nearly enough as to what we need uh, to keep our child care um, infrastructure in place. And remember, we've lost about 45 to 55% of capacity with these lower ratios. Much of that lost capacity has been in our most vulnerable areas, places where we already had childcare deserts. Um, one of the things that we did with the Children's Caucus, uh, this is where we have to advocate, not just in the state and in the state house, but also with our federal partners. Um, for future federal relief bills. And so we have asked um, for Congress to commit $50 million in dedicated funding 
to childcare across the country to help fill that need and to keep this infrastructure in place that again, you know, this is the workforce behind the workforce. People cannot go to jobs if they don't have reliable, quality, affordable childcare. Today, um, estimates are that about 27% of Ohioans live in a childcare desert. Um, but when you go to the most vulnerable areas uh, and rural areas, it's 66% of Ohioans. And then you look at the infrastructure today, uh, I think Rep. Russo was alluding to right now that capacity is down. But what we're looking at, it, there's a new study from Center for American Progress out today that 45% of childcare capacity could close permanently. Uh, childcare centers are coming out financially much weaker coming out of this. So our economy does not work uh, without access to childcare. Definitely agree that there's a federal response. It's it's a the scale of the problem is such that a federal response should be requ is required, um, and loans really aren't going to be uh, enough. I think to keep the the capacity in place that we need. Yeah, I think um, just to add to that, some of the estimates um, just to maintain where we were before the pandemic, which frankly was not enough because as uh, was mentioned earlier, we already had childcare deserts before this, but we're at four to $5 million just in the state of Ohio that is needed to get us and to be able to maintain uh, the childcare options that we had previously. Um, frankly, you know, given the hit that the COVID-19 crisis has put on our state revenue going into the next budget cycle, uh, we're going to be facing tremendous cuts. And so we can't just do it with state intervention. This is where we truly need a commitment by our federal partners in Congress to make sure that there is dedicated funding to childcare uh, because it is so critically important. You know, one of the things that I will say, you know, if we can look for a positive in all of this is that we are talking about childcare uh, in terms of it is necessary for our economy and it is necessary for our workforce. And I think being able to you know, look at it through that prism and have it so very clear to us as we're coming, you know, still moving, I wouldn't say coming out of this crisis, but still moving through this crisis um, is I think hopefully a positive and emphasizes you know, how necessary it is for people to be able to go back to work. And if I could just add on that, Totally agree. Um, and it's not just for the parents, for the children. It's so incredibly important to have them in care. When you look at um, educational outcomes and equalizers, what, what we can do to create equality of opportunity across the state, the number one thing, the lowest hanging fruit, but, but what, we have, what we have so many struggles with is access to early childhood education. Kids need to have access to that structured environment and they're in an educational-like environment. You know, we say childcare and daycare, but for uh, in a lot of cases, these are it's really school that they're in uh, early, and they're getting those early years of of critical structure and education that paid so many dividends down the road. I mean, the return on investment for the taxpayer to to invest in this childcare capacity is massive because the educational and economic outcomes for these kids is so massively increased when they are brought into an educational environment at an early stage. Absolutely. And also my son is just tired of being around me. So well, <laughs> they do love the structure. My daughter, in fact, has created, she has created her own school down in our basement. Aww. 
started in all of this. So she, she conducts her own classroom downstairs. So uh, yeah, so she, she definitely has missed her teachers in her classroom uh, during all of this. And, and actually she has gone back very recently when our child care center opened, uh, she's going back three days a week, um, you know, which is a, it, it's a tough decision right now because you know, you're weighing the, the public health piece. And there's so much that we still don't know about this virus and what the potential long-term impacts are to exposure with, you know, we have to be able to be productive and go back to work. And, and she needs, you know, the structured learning environment. Uh, it's a very nurturing, positive environment for her. Uh, so it's a tough decision for parents. Uh, so I'm fortunate and I recognize the privilege that I have to even be able to make that choice and to choose to, to do it part-time, which was the decision that we thought was probably best for our family. Um, but, you know, there are many, many working parents who do not have that choice. Um, and, you know, we, I've said this before when we were talking about reopening childcare centers and having a plan for the long-term sustainability of our child, uh, early childhood education and care infrastructure, um, we cannot simply rely on the flexibility of employers. Uh, and in talking with business leaders, they recognize this as well. They understand that this is one of the, if not the top concern of many of their employees. Uh, so they recognize it as well as a critical piece to getting this economy moving again and moving and going forward. Absolutely. And that kind and of goes. Made, yeah. Sorry, Kelly. I was just going to say that kind of leads into our next question, but if yeah. you have something to add, by all means. Yeah, just, we made the same decision. Our, our uh, three-year-old, our daughter's going into, into daycare uh, three days a week um, starting in August. So it was that balancing act for us as well. My son it, went full-time, but they didn't have the option for part-time, so. Right, well, and I think a lot of uh, families and parents that I have been talking with, you know, if they want, it, I, I feel like we're probably lucky, Weinstein and I and our um, centers, because a lot of centers are not providing a part-time option. They just financially cannot do it and can't make the ratios work. Um, so finding those part-time options are incredibly difficult for many parents. Uh, many parents, if they're able to do it, you know, they're having providers come into their homes, which is incredibly more expensive uh, to do that, or they're having to rely on family members to provide the care. And, you know, as we know, that's often a grandparent or um, someone who may be at higher risk for COVID-19. And so that creates a whole other set of issues that we then have to deal with. So it is a very tough set of decisions for working parents. And frankly, there are some working parents, particularly our single parents and single moms often, um, who it's an unimaginable choice. And it's not, they, there are no good options, if, especially if they're in an area where they already struggle to get reliable childcare. Um, and now you've cut that capacity um, and it's usually pro problematic. And as we know, um, when we look at uh, some of the, the announcements last week for unemployment and what would classify as a waiver for unemployment, childcare and lack of childcare was not on that list for our state unemployment. Now, technically, you can go and apply for PUA, um, which is the federal program. Um, however, that process and starting back over through that process is incredibly cumbersome 
and uh, it's not a smooth transition. And so we have many parents who are facing, you know, the very real likelihood that even with unemployment, they may have gaps there, uh, which again is an unconscionable choice. So I guess at the end of the day, what would you say to somebody who is struggling to make a decision about what to do with their child right now? Um, whether they're scared to put them back in childcare, but also needing to do so because they have to work. I don't really have a great answer for it right now. I understand the fear. I understand the concern uh, that people have and the trade-offs that they're making. Um, one thing I would say is I, I have, I have uh, friends who own childcare two childcare centers. Um, we've become close with the, the owners of our child kids, childcare center. If that's available and accessible to you, they're taking great pains and to provide a really, really safe environment. And they're, they've been operating like this for years um, because kids are, you know, disease spreaders. Um, so they have the expertise and the capability to manage this. And I'm really confident of that. Uh, so if that is available and accessible to you, um, I, I have confidence in them. And I also feel like kids need to be in the classroom when we can do it safely. Kids need to be in that environment. So I, I just, I want to put that dose of confidence out there for people who are in a situation where they can access childcare. And then the, the last thing is, I mean, sorry to get political about it, but we need more, we need more representatives who are willing to, to put resources behind this. So ask your representative about it. And if you don't get a good answer about where their priorities are in terms of providing more access to childcare, vote for somebody who does. And that needs to be said. Um, and you have an opportunity to do that in the coming months. So let's make this an agenda. Let's, you know, as Rep. Russo said, it's a discussion item now. It's something people are talking about. Let's hold people accountable for it. Yeah, I, you know, I would agree with everything that Rep. Weinstein has said, uh, especially emphasizing, you know, our early childhood educators and providers are professionals. And um, I, I think we need to value that, um, not only with the amount of public dollars that we're putting into our early childhood system, um, but also, I think in, you know, how we're working with them through this epidemic and this pandemic, um, because, you know, as was said before, you know, dealing with infectious diseases with childcare providers is not something new that they have to do. Um, now, that said, you know, we absolutely need to be putting science and public health first in all of this and, and thinking about, you know, how do we um, maybe move those ratios when it makes sense. Um, but the other thing that I just want to emphasize as well, just piggybacking on what Rep. Weinstein said about having representatives at the state house who prioritize this issue. You know, I think that this is part of the value of parents in elected office with young children. Um, I will just be very honest. I think that this issue is only prioritized uh, when you have often parents with young children who are living this experience and recognize um, the current, not only the costs that are associated with quality early childhood care and education, but also what that means in terms of our economy and our workforce. And also in terms of being invested and in what that means for our future, because as was mentioned before, the dividends of 
good investment in early childhood has so many dividends down the, the road that, you know, frankly, as a state, we are, we are paying the consequences of not investing early in our children. Um, so, you know, this absolutely should be an issue that people are asking their representatives about and making sure that we have more people and more decision makers who are truly invested and this is a future investment. And sometimes that's really difficult for people who are in our position because we're thinking often in two-year terms and budget cycles. And this is really long-term, 10-year, 20-year investment. And we have to be willing um, to put our money in now and have that pay off 10 and 20 years later. The state um, is currently sitting on a large surplus of money um, in the TNF budget, temporary assistance for needy families. Um, so can you kind of talk to us about how TNF dollars are currently being spent and just kind of give like a brief explanation for people who aren't familiar with the topic? Uh, we did have a surplus of the TNF dollars. I think most of those have, have been committed at this point. But again, we can't rely on that. We, we have to be willing to put in um, more investment as a state in terms of that publicly funded child care um, and the qualifications, moving that from the current 130% up to, I would love to see it up to 200%. I mean, let's not forget, you know, we have been debating this issue of school vouchers and we moved the eligibility of that up to 200%, I believe, um, or 250, I think was, was the percent in terms of the compromise. Um, at the very least, we need to be doing that for early childhood education and putting a significant amount of state investment in early childhood because we know that when kids have good nurturing, um, positive environments, they are kindergarten ready. And when they get into school, they, they need less intervention services and they perform better as they get into school and they do better and have um, better um, social emotional outcomes, uh, as well as just, you know, doing better overall in school. Um, so often when we talk about reproductive health and rights, um, issues of parenting can get lost in the debate about abortion, uh, particularly with anti-abortion um, anti legislators oversimplifying the issue of choice um, and not addressing system and services that support reproductive choice. Um, so how may you um, explain this to a legislator or a colleague who is on the fence about our issue? How may you tie in the importance of childcare for parenting decisions? When you call yourself pro-life, you actually, if you're gonna use that term, you need to actually be pro-life, which means that you're thinking about the lifetime of a child and what that child needs after the child is born. And um, that seems to be a major disconnect in terms of um, trying to see that bigger picture. It seems like the, the life in their mind uh, kind of stops when, the, when, when a baby's born. Um, so understanding, you know, I kind of, in some senses, want to retake, like, redefine what that word means. Well, it means that you're going to provide care and opportunities for mothers and families, especially those of lesser means, to be able to support a child. And right now, we don't have that, as we've laid out quite clearly in this call, um, particularly in Ohio. 
So it creates a massive economic, uh, financial, uh, and life burden on a mother when there is no support, no support system around to help raise a child. So, um, you know, when I'm talking about it with my fellow legislators, unfortunately, it becomes a uh, well, fortunately and unfortunately, I guess it becomes a dollars and cents program. The investment that that we could make in early childhood education and access to childcare, the the massive economic benefit um, that it could have. And you know, I guess there's the there's the, I haven't had this conversation, but there is the possibility that when there's a more supportive environment for families, that more families would want to have kids and be able to have children. And right now they're, they're forced into an economic decision because we have no apparatus in place to, to support families. So, um, you know, that term is such a loaded term, pro-life, <laughs> but I, I think Democrats actually are, and I'm getting a little bit political again, but hey, it's campaign season. Uh, we support children throughout their lives. And we support investments in child and equal outcomes and equality of opportunity throughout their lives, whether that's education or healthcare or supporting families. And that's what we need to see more of. Yeah, I would just, and, and I agree with all of that. I would just say, you know, I, this is, we're, we wanna be pro-family is what we want to be. And we wanna create environments uh, for families and children to thrive. And when we look at what is happening to children, particularly young children in this state, it is abysmal. The number of children who live in poverty, the number of children who don't have equitable access to quality, whether it be early childhood education or our public education, um, that is not pro-family and that is not pro-life. And we need to shift the conversation to be thinking about what can we do in this state to make Ohio the most pro-family state in the country. And I think that that is something that really both sides of the aisle should be able to get behind. Um, and, you know, that is investing in early childhood education, that's investing in our public schools and creating an environment where people want to live here and stay here to raise their families, to start businesses, um, you know, and that is very good for our economy. Are there certain bills in the state legislature or the U.S. Congress that we should be watching and either advocating for or against um, on the subject of child care? The HEROES Act that has already passed the House, I think it had $7 billion that was set aside uh, directly advocated or de dedicated to early childhood um, education and care. Uh, we need much more than that. We need our senators to step up and add more investment. Uh, the recommendation has been $50 billion. And I said four to $5 million in the state of Ohio. I should have added a B to that. That's four to $5 billion uh, just for the, um, or it was somewhere in that range, um, just for the investment uh, for Ohio is needed. Yeah, I think there is an there may be an opportunity emerging for that. Um, the the economy, the reopening, being very shaky, uneven. It's clear we're going to be in uh, some significant measure of economic uh, uncertainty and pain for a lot of people for quite a while. Um, and then it's also creating uncertainty about what what school is going to look like or what access for care is going to look like in the fall. That's uh, we don't have a lot of clarity on that right now, and we're not trending in a positive direction in terms of in terms of that. So 
I, there, at the federal level, I do think there is an emerging opportunity for a, a round of, of, um, of stimulus. The, the House has spoken with a really good, I agree that the HEROES legislation is fantastic. Senate on the federal side hasn't taken that up yet or taken up another round of um, economic aid. Uh, but if they do, then we need to advocate for uh, early childhood education and direct support for child care centers to preserve as much capacity and, and ideally expand capacity uh, at this uh, crucial time. And, and I noticed that Will has reminded me, thank you, Will, that the Child Care is Essential Act as well has been introduced. And I believe that's a bipartisan piece of legislation as well that is specific to um, outside of the, the HEROES Act, specific to investment in uh, early childhood care and education. So I, I would say that that probably is the most critical thing at the moment uh, because we have to have federal intervention and support uh, just given the state of not only Ohio's budget but also other state budgets across the country which uh, are being hit tremendously hard because of the, the economic fallout from this pandemic. Thank you both so much for joining us. Um, if you enjoyed this webinar, which I hope you did, I hope you join us next month for July, which will be on paid family leave. Um, but have a great rest of your Monday. Thank you. Right. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye.